Chapter Three, Part Two of the Talisman. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Talisman by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Three, Part Two. The light was now verging low, yet served the night still to discern that they two were no longer alone in the desert, but were closely watched by a figure of great height and very thin, which skipped over rocks and bushes with so much agility as added to the wild and hirsute appearance of the individual, reminded him of the fauns and sylvans whose images he had seen in the ancient temples of Rome. As the single-hearted Scottishman, had never for a moment doubted these gods of the ancient Gentiles to be actually devils, so he now hesitated not to believe that the blasphemous hymn of the Saracen had raised up an infernal spirit. "'But what wrecks it?' said stout Sir Kenneth to himself. "'Down with the fiend and his worshippers!' He did not, however, think it necessary to give the same warning of defiance. "'to two enemies as he would unquestionably have afforded to one. "'His hand was upon his mace, "'and perhaps the unwary Saracen would have paid for his Persian poetry "'by having his brains dashed out on the spot "'without any reason assigned for it. "'But the Scottish knight was spared from committing "'what would have been a sore blot in his shield of arms. "'The apparition, on which his eyes had been fixed for some time, had at first appeared to dog their path by concealing itself behind rocks and shrubs, using those advantages of the ground with great address, and surmounting its irregularities with surprising agility. At length, just as the Saracen paused in his song, the figure, which was that of a tall man clothed in goatskins, sprung up into the midst of the path, and seized a rein of the Saracen's bridle in either hand, confronting thus and bearing back the noble horse, which, unable to endure the manner in which this sudden assailant pressed the long-armed bit, and the severe curb, which, according to the eastern fashion, was a solid ring of iron, reared upright and finally fell backwards on his master, who, however, avoided the peril of the fall by lightly throwing himself to one side. The assailant then shifted his grasp from the bridle of the horse, to the throat of the rider, flung himself above the struggling Saracen, and, despite of his youth and activity, kept him undermost, breathing his long arms above those of his prisoner, who called out angrily, and yet half laughing at the same time, "'Hamco, fool, unloose me! This passes thy privilege. Unloose me, or I will use my dagger.' "'Thy dagger, infidel dog,' said the figure in the goatskins, "'Hold it in thy grip if thy canst.' "'And in an instant he wrenched the Saracen's weapon out of its owner's hand, "'and brandished it over his head. "'Help, Nazarene!' cried Sherkoff, now seriously alarmed. "'Help, or the Hamako will slay me!' "'Slay thee?' replied the dweller of the desert. "'And well the hast thou merited death, for singing thy blasphemous hymns, "'not only to the praise of thy false prophet, who is the foul fiend's harbinger but to that of the author of evil himself. The Christian knight had hitherto looked on as one stupefied. So strangely had this rencontre contradicted, in its progress and event, all that he had previously conjectured. He felt, however, at length, 
that it touched his honour to interfere in behalf of his discomfited companion, and therefore addressed himself to the victorious figure in the goatskins. "'Whosoever thou art,' he said, "'and whether of good or of evil, "'know that I am sworn from the time "'to be true companion to the Saracen "'whom thou holdest under thee. "'Therefore I pray thee to let him arise, "'else I will do battle with thee in his behalf.' "'And a proper quarrel it were,' "'answered the Hamaco, "'for a crusader to do battle in, "'for the sake of an unbaptized dog, "'to combat one of his own holy faith?' Art thou come forth to the wilderness, to fight for the crescent against the cross? A goodly soldier of God art thou, to listen to those who sing the praises of Satan. Yet while he spoke thus, he arose himself, and, suffering the Saracen to rise also, returned to him his kangar, or poignard. Thou seest to what a point of peril thy presumption hath brought thee, continued he of the goatskins, now addressing Sherkoff and by what weak means thy practised skill and boasted agility can be foiled, when such is heaven's pleasure. Wherefore, beware, O Ilderim, for know that, were there not a twinkle in the star of thy nativity, which promises for thee something that is good, and gracious in heaven's good time, we two had not parted till I had torn asunder the throat which so lately trilled forth blasphemies. Hamaco, said the Saracen, without any appearance of resenting the violent language, and yet more violent assault to which he had been subjected. I pray thee, good Hamaco, to beware how thou dost again urge thy privilege over far, for though, as a good Moslem, I respect those whom heaven hath deprived of ordinary reason, in order to endow them with the spirit of prophecy, yet I like not other man's hands on the bridle of my horse, neither upon my own person. Speak, therefore, what thou wilt, secure of any resentment from me, but gather so much sense as to apprehend that if thou shalt again prefer me any violence, I will strike thy shagged head from thy meagre shoulders. And to thee, friend Kenneth, he added, as he remounted his steed, I must needs say, that in a companion through the desert, I love friendly deeds better than fair words. Of the last thou hast given me enough, but it is even better to have aided me more speedily in my struggle with this hamaco, "'who had well-nigh taken my life in his frenzy.' "'By my faith,' said the knight, "'I did somewhat fail, "'was somewhat tardy in rendering the instant help. "'But the strangeness of the assailant, "'the suddenness of the scene, "'it was as if thy wild and wicked lay "'had raised the devil among us, "'and such was my confusion "'that two or three minutes elapsed "'ere I could take my weapon. "'Thou art but a cold and considerate friend,' "'said the Saracen.' And, had the hamaco been one grain more frenetic, thy companion had been slain by thy side, to thy eternal dishonour, without thy stirring a finger in his aid, although thou sightest by, mounted, and in arms. By my word, Saracen, said the Christian, if thou wilt have it in plain terms, I thought that strange figure was the devil, and being of thy lineage, I knew not what family secret you might be communicating to each other, as you lay lovingly rolling together on the sand. "'Thy gib is no answer, brother Kenneth,' said the Saracen. "'For know that had my assailant been in very deed the Prince of Darkness, "'thou wert bound not the less to enter into combat with him in thy comrade's behalf. "'Know also that whatever there may be of foul or of fiendish about the hamaco "'belongs more to your lineage than to mine, 
this Hamako being, in truth, the anchorite whom thou art to come hither to visit. This? said Sir Kenneth, looking at the athletic yet wasted figure before him. This? Thou mockest Saracen. This cannot be the venerable Theododric. Ask himself, if thou wilt not believe me, answered Sheerkoff, and ere the words had left his mouth, the hermit gave evidence in his own behalf. I am Theododric of Ingadi, he said. I am the walker of the desert. I am friend of the cross, and flail of all infidels, heretics, and devil-worshippers. Avoid ye, avoid ye, down with Mahound, Termagant, and all their adherents. So saying, he pulls from under his shaggy garment a sort of flail or jointed club, bound with iron, which he brandished round his head with singular dexterity. Thou seest thy saint, said the Saracen, laughing for the first time at the unmitigated astonishment with which Sir Kenneth looked on the wild gestures and heard the wayward mutterings of Theododric, who, after swinging his flail in every direction, apparently quite recklessly, whether it encountered the head of either of his companions, finally showed his own strength, and the soundness of the weapon, by striking into fragments a large stone which lay near him. "'This is a madman,' said Sir Kenneth. "'Not the worst saint,' returned the Moslem, speaking according to the well-known Eastern belief, that madmen are under the influence of immediate inspiration. "'No, Christian, that when one eye is extinguished, the other becomes more keen. When one hand is cut off, the other becomes more powerful. So, when our reason in human things is disturbed or destroyed, our view heavenward becomes more acute and perfect.' Here the voice of the Saracen was drowned in that of the hermit, who began to holloa aloud in a wild, chanting tone. "'I am Theododric of Ingadi. I am the torch-brand of the desert. I am the flail of the infidels. The lion and the leopard shall be my comrades, and draw nigh to my cell for shelter. Neither shall the goat be afraid of their fangs. I am the torch and the lantern. Kyrie Elison. He closed his song by a short race and ended that again by three forward bounds, which would have done him great credit in a gymnastic academy, but became his character of hermit so indifferently that the Scottish knight was altogether confounded and bewildered. The Saracen seemed to understand him better. "'You see,' he said, "'that he expects us to follow him to his cell, which, indeed, is our only place of refuge for the night. "'You are the leopard from the portrait of your shield,' I am the lion, as my name imports, and by the goat, alluding to his garb of goatskins, he means himself. We must keep him in sight, however, for he is as fleet as a dromedary. In fact, the task was a difficult one, for though the reverend guide stopped from time to time, and waved his hand as if to encourage them to come on, yet, well acquainted with all the winding dwells and passes of the desert, and gifted with uncommon activity, which, perhaps, an unsettled state of mind kept in constant exercise. He led the knights through chasms and along footpaths, where even the light-armed Saracen, with his well-trained barb, was in considerable risk, and where the iron-sheathed European and his overburdened steed found themselves in such imminent peril as the rider would have gladly exchanged for the dangers of general action. Glad he was when, at length after this wild race, he beheld the holy man who had led it standing in front of a cavern, 
with a large torch in his hand, composed of a piece of wood dipped in butamin, which cast a broad and flickering light, and emitted a strong sulphurous smell. Undeterred by the stifling vapour, the knight threw himself from his horse and entered the cavern, which afforded small appearance of accommodation. The cell was divided into two parts, in the outward of which were an altar of stone and a crucifix made of reeds. This served the anchorite for his chapel. On one side of this outward cave the Christian knight, though not without scruple, arising from religious reverence to the objects around, fastened up his horse, and arranged him for the night in imitation of the Saracen, who gave him to understand that such was the custom of the place. The hermit, meanwhile, was busied putting his inner apartment in order to receive his guests, and there they soon joined him. At the bottom of the outer cave, a small aperture, closed with a door of rough plank, led into the sleeping apartment of the hermit, who was more commodious. The floor had been brought to a rough level by the labour of the inhabitant, and then strewed with white sand, which he daily sprinkled with water from a small fountain, which bubbled out of the rock in one corner, affording in that stifling climate refreshment alike to the ear and the taste. Mattresses wrought of twisted flags lay by the side of the cell. The sides, like the floor, had been roughly brought to shape, and several herbs and flowers were hung around them. The two waxen torches which the hermit lighted gave a cheerful air to the place, which was rendered agreeable by its fragrance and coolness. There were implements of labour in one corner of the apartment. In another was a niche for a rude statue of the Virgin. A table and two chairs showed that they must be the handiwork of the anchorite, being different in their form from oriental accommodations. The former was covered, not only with reeds and pulse, but also with dried flesh, which Theodoric assiduously placed in such arrangements as should invite the appetite of his guests. This appearance of courtesy, though mute, and expressed by gestures only, seemed to Sir Kenneth something entirely irreconcilable with his former wild and violent demeanour. The movements of the hermit were now become composed, and apparently it was only a sense of religious humiliation which prevented his features, emaciated as they were by his austere mode of life, from being majestic and noble. He trod his cell as one who seemed born to rule over men, but who had abdicated his empire to become the servant of heaven. Still, it must be allowed that his gigantic size, the length of his unshaven locks and beard, and the fire of a deep-set and wild eye, were rather attributes of a soldier than a recluse. Even the Saracen seemed to regard the anchorite with some veneration, while he was thus employed and he whispered in a low tone to Sir Kenneth, "'The hamaco is now in his better mind, but he will not speak until we have eaten. Such is his vow.' It was in silence, accordingly, that Theodoric mentioned to the Scot to take his place on one of the low chairs, while Shirkov placed himself, after the custom of his nation, upon a cushion of mats. The hermit then held up both hands, as if blessing the refreshment, which he had placed before his guests, and they proceeded to eat in silence as profound as his own. To the Saracen this gravity was natural. 
and the Christian imitated his taciturnity, while he employed his thoughts on the singularity of his own situation, and the contrast betwixt the wild, furious gesticulations, loud cries, and fierce actions of Theodoric when they first met him, and the demure, solemn, decorous assiduity with which he now performed the duties of hospitality. When their meal was ended, the hermit, who had not eaten himself a morsel, removed the fragments from the table, and placing before the Saracen a pitcher of sherbet, assigned to the Scot a flask of wine. "'Drink,' he said, "'my children.' They were the first words he had spoken. "'The gifts of God are to be enjoyed, when the giver is remembered.' Having said this, he retired to the outward cell, probably for performance of his devotions, and left his guests together in the inner apartment. When Sir Kenneth endeavoured, by various questions, to draw from Sherkov what the emir knew concerning his host, he was interested by more than mere curiosity in these inquiries. Difficult as it was to reconcile the outrageous demeanour of the recluse at his first appearance, with his present humbled and placid behaviour, it seemed yet more impossible to think it consistent with the high consideration in which, according to what Sir Kenneth had learned, this hermit was held by the most enlightened divines of the Christian world. Theodoric, the hermit of Engadi, had, in that character, been the correspondent of popes and councils, to whom his letters, full of eloquent fervour, had described the miseries imposed by the unbelievers upon the Latin Christians in the Holy Land, in colours scarce inferior to those employed at the Council of Clermont by the hermit Peter, when he preached the First Crusade, to find, in a person so reverend and so much revered, the frantic gestures of a mad fakir, induced the Christian knight to pause, ere he could resolve to communicate to him certain important matters, which he had in charge from some of the leaders of the crusade. It had been the main object of Sir Kenneth's pilgrimage, attempted by a route so unusual, to make such communications. But what he had that night seen, induced him to pause and reflect, ere he proceeded to the execution of his commission. From the emir he could not extract much information, but the general tenor was as follows. That, as he had heard, the hermit had been once a brave and valiant soldier, wise in counsel and fortunate in battle, which last he could easily believe from the great strength and agility which he had often seen him displayed. That he had appeared at Jerusalem, in the character not of a pilgrim, but in that of one who had devoted himself to dwell for the remainder of his life in the Holy Land. Shortly afterwards he fixed his residence amid the scenes of desolation where they now found him. Respected by the Latins for his austere devotion, and by the Turks and Arabs on account of the symptoms of insanity which he displayed, and which they ascribed to inspiration. It was from them he had the name of Hamako, which expresses such a character in the Turkish language. Sherkov himself seemed at a loss how to rank their host. He had been, he said, a wise man, and could often, for many hours, speak lessons of virtue or wisdom, without the slightest appearance of inaccuracy. At other times he was wild and violent, but never before had he seen him so mischievously disposed as he had that day appeared to be. 
his rage was chiefly provoked by an affront to his religion, and there was a story of some wandering Arabs, who had insulted his worship and defaced his altar, and whom he had on that account attacked and slain with the short flail, which he carried with him in lieu of all other weapons. This incident had made a great noise, and it was as much the fear of the hermit's iron flail, as regard of his character as a hamaco, which caused the roving tribes to respect his dwelling and his chapel. His fame had spread so far that Saladin had issued particular orders that he should be spared and protected. He himself, and other Muslim lords of rank, had visited the cell more than once, partly from curiosity, partly that they expected from a man so learned as the Christian Hamako, some insight into the secrets of futurity. He had, continued the Saracen, a rashid or observatory of great height, contrived to view the heavenly bodies, and particularly the planetary system, by whose movements and influences, as both Christian and Moslem believed, the course of human events was regulated, and might be predicted. This was the substance of the Emir Sherkov's information, and it left Sir Kenneth in doubt whether the character of insanity arose from the occasional excessive fervour of the hermit's zeal, or whether it was not altogether fictitious, and assumed for the sake of the immunities which it afforded. Yet it seemed that the infidels had carried their complacence towards him to an uncommon length, considering the fanaticisms of the followers of Mohammed, in the midst of whom he was living, though the professed enemy of their faith. He also thought there was more intimacy of acquaintance betwixt the hermit and the Saracen, than the words of the latter had induced him to anticipate. And it had not escaped him that the former had called the latter by a name different from which he himself had assumed. All these considerations authorised caution, if not suspicion. He determined to observe his host closely, and not to be over-hasty and communicated with him on the important charge entrusted to him. "'Beware, Saracen,' he said. "'Methinks our host's imagination wanders as well on the subject of names as upon other matters. "'Thy name is Sherkov, and he called thee but now by another.' "'My name, when in the tent of my father,' replied the Kurdman, "'was Ilderim, and by this I am still distinguished by many. "'In the field, and to soldiers, I am known as the Lion of the Mountain, "'being the name my good sword hath won for me. "'But hush, the hamaco comes. "'It is to warn us to rest. "'I know his custom. "'None must watch him at his vigils.' "'The anchorite accordingly entered, "'and folding his arms on his bosom as he stood before them, said with a solemn voice, "'Blessed be his name, who hath appointed the quiet night to follow the busy day, "'and the calm sleep to refresh the wearied limbs, and to compose the troubled spirit.' "'Both warriors replied, "'Amen,' and, arising from the table, "'prepared to betake themselves to the couches, "'which their host indicated by waving his hand, "'as, making a reverence to each, he again withdrew from the apartment.' The knight of the leopard then disarmed himself of his heavy panel plea, his Saracen companion kindly assisting him to undo his buckler and clasps, until he remained in the close dress of chemise leather, which knights and men-at-arms used to wear under their harness. The Saracen, 
if he had admired the strength of his adversary when sheathed in steel, was now no less struck with the accuracy of proportion displayed in his nervous and well-compacted figure. The knight, on the other hand, as in exchange of courtesy, he assisted the Saracen to disrobe himself of his upper garments, that he might sleep with more convenience, was on his side, at a loss to conceive how such slender proportions and slimness of figure could be reconciled with the vigour he had displayed in personal contest. Each warrior prayed ere he addressed himself to his place of rest. The Moslem turned towards his Kebla, the point to which the prayer of each follower of the Prophet was to be addressed, and murmured his heathen orisons, while the Christian, withdrawing from the contamination of the infidel's neighbourhood, placed his huge cross-handled sword upright, and kneeling before it as a sign of salvation, told his rosary with a devotion which was enhanced by the recollections of the scenes through which he had passed, and the dangers from which he had been rescued in the course of the day. Both warriors, worn by toil and travel, were soon fast asleep, each on his separate pallet. End of chapter 3, part 2